Well, we had a blast being with our family for a few days last weekend. Here's a picture of our seven grandchildren, all ages seven and under. And we were here, most of us were here last Sunday, and what a joy to hear Pastor Ed preach. He did a great job, but I told him afterwards I wasn't happy with him. He goes, why? I said, because you sang at the end of your message, and that puts a lot of pressure on me. Don't worry, that's never going to happen. Well, as part of our time together, uh, we made a trip up to Wisconsin. That's where my dad lives, my four sisters live. And while we were at one of my sister's houses, another sister showed up, and she came bearing two gallons of A&W root beer. Man, I was immediately transported back in time because we had an A&W Ripier stand in our neighborhood that we could access by cutting through a number of backyards. And I have memories of going to pick up Ripier for our family. Mary poured me a glass of the foamy drink and the aroma took me back to the days I used to work at the restaurant when I was in high school. And I remembered being down in the basement where we had these big uh, gallon, not gallon, it was just this huge uh, tub, if you will, and we would pour, concentrate in, and sugar in there, and what, you don't want to know how much sugar is in A&W Rit Beer. <laughs> but incredibly, through all this, as I'm smelling and tasting the Rit Beer, it tasted just like I remembered it, my mind went back to something I wasn't really fond of. You see, my boss made me dress up as the A&W Ritbeer Bear, <laughs> also known as Rudy. <laughs> my job was to hand out root beer barrels and free coupons to patrons in the parking lot. So as embarrassing as it is to admit, part of my identity when I was in high school was wrapped up in being Rudy the Root Bear Bear. I'm not exactly sure why I just told you that because I don't, don't really want that nickname again. Makes me think of this. The topic of identity is a huge issue in our culture today. You see, many suggest we can find our identity by looking inward. Just figure out who you are by looking inside. Others proclaim that identity is wrapped up in what we do or with what we have. Still others equate gender or equate identity with gender or sexuality. Identity is powerful because it relates to who we are and why we're here. It's how we define ourselves and it clarifies our purpose in life. Well, contrary to our culture's confusion, identity is not self-declared and it's not self-developed. Identity is given to us by our maker and by our redeemer. One author says it like this, Christian identity is received, it's not achieved, taking enormous pressure off us to perform and merit our own affirmation. Now, in short, you are who God says you are. Amen. You are who God says you are. You have been made in the image of God, and therefore you have value, you have dignity, you have worth because of, listen, who you are, or more accurately, whose you are. 
Uh, let me take our minds to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You matter because you have been made by the maker. And some of you, that bounced right off you because you're like, uh uh-uh, I don't matter. It might be because of your past. It might be because of your present. But listen, you matter because of who made you. We're going to be addressing the topic of identity in a greater de- with greater detail this fall. Uh, we're going to be kicking off a seven-part series we're calling Unshaken and Unashamed. Now, here's the context for today. The Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's about to be martyred for his faith. He's writing to a young pastor. He knows he doesn't have long to live. And this young pastor's name is Timothy. Paul actually wrote two letters to them. And those letters are in your Bible, known as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. This summer, we're giving our focus to the second letter, the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote right before he lost his life for his faith in Christ. And so he wants Timothy, who's younger and timid, to remember who he is and his identity. And what he does in chapter 2 is he paints some pictures, some portraits, if you will, of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. Now, with that as a brief background, let's give our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're able, would you stand and let's worship together as we proclaim his word. The two thoughts hit me before we read this. Number one, this is an opportunity for us to rejoice because we have a God who's spoken and he's put it in this book and we get to hear it. At the same time, my mind thinks of a verse in Isaiah that that says that God looks for those who tremble at his word. And so it's rejoicing and it's revering him. And so with that, let's worship as we read God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You can be seated. We could summarize Paul's heart here for Timothy. Hey, Timothy, before you leave this world, before passing on, pass it on the gospel that's been entrusted to you by leaving a legacy of faithfulness. The first image we could call a fearless child. Look at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you're born again, you are a child of God. It's your identity. 
It means you're a son or a daughter of the king. Observe the first two words, you then. Well, those two words make a lot of sense when you put it in reverse and look at what happened in the chapter before. Paul's calling out some guys who have bailed on their faith, and he recalls that many in Asia, when hard times come, came, they left what they believed, and so he's writing to Timothy, and he's like, Timothy, that's not you. You then, my child. Think of how tender that is, how personal that is to call someone my child. Well, there's even more going on there because Paul had the joy of leading Timothy to the Lord. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, his first letter, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 2 of 2 Timothy, to Timothy, my beloved child. And one of my favorite parts of baptism services is when we get to hear how God saved people. Don't you love that? To hear people's story? To see how God has drawn someone to himself, either through the influence of parents for those who have the privilege and joy of being raised in a Christian home, or for others like myself who was in a faraway place, and God reached down and saved us. I love that. We're going to hear more about that Sunday, August 13th. Related to that, I enjoyed reading a recent letter that someone sent to Ray Pritchard, Ray's the author of the book Anchor for the Soul, this gospel book. She describes how God got her attention in a very unusual and unforgettable way. Little context, she works in a very stressful job. During lunch, she decided to go out for a walk. So here's this lady out for a walk. Well, let me have her tell what happened in her own words. Quote, while I was taking my walk during lunch, an individual threw your book at me, hit me right in the face, and said, maybe this blank, I can't say what this guy said, maybe this blank will be useful to you. And then he walked away very angry. Imagine if that's you. You're out taking a walk. Somebody whips a book, hits you in the head, cusses, and then walks off angry. What are you going to do? You're probably going to bend down and pick up the book. She picked up the book. Well, let's hear in her own words. She says, I'm currently still at work, and I just finished the first chapter. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious, and I do want a relationship With God, I think this book is the beginning of a new path for me, and I wanted to reach out and say thank you so much. I can't wait to read more. I love Ray's response. God has many ways of reaching people. Sometimes we won't get the message until it hits us in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how about you? What's God using to get your attention? He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to go a direction away from him, and he's... Is he using something to kind of get you to go, whoa? And maybe that's one reason you came today. How is God getting your attention? And and if you're not yet a child of God through the new birth, settle that today. Paul continues, writing to Timothy, he says, be strengthened. 
That means to be empowered or make strong. One commentator counted up the number of times Paul said to Timothy some form of the phrase, be strong, in these two letters and came up with 25 different times. You know why? Because Timothy was timid. His temperament, he's like, I can't do that. He kind of shied away from the hard stuff. And so Paul says, be strengthened. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, tough it up, (laughs) tough it out. Look within yourself and be strong, hang in there. He doesn't say anything like that. Notice he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The source of strength comes from outside of us. And Paul said that in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, think of this. God's grace saves us. God's grace sanctifies us, sets us apart. And God's grace strengthens us. Number two, the picture of a faithful steward. He reminds Timothy that he's a fearless child, and now he paints another picture. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy's been told to guard the gospel and now to give out the gospel, to pass it on to others. We could call this the ministry of multiplication. Here he's entrusted, which means to deposit something valuable for safekeeping. The key is to find faithful men and women who will faithfully but pass the baton of faith along to other faithful people. That's the job of a steward, of a manager. 1 Corinthians 4.2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Psalm 101, 6, God looks with favor on the faithful in the land. So here's where we start, parents and grandparents. The faith that we pass on must first go to our children and to our grandchildren to do whatever we can to evangelize and disciple our own families. Now, so here's a question. Would it be better to disciple 10 people a year for 30 years or one person every two years. But that one person would in turn disciple someone else. And that person would disciple another individual. Option one would yield 300 disciples over a lifetime. Option two would produce more than 32,000 disciples. I think of how Pastor Brown was used mightily here at Edgewood for 44 years of faithful and fruitful ministry. He followed this multiplication model. Think of Pastor Ed and Pastor Tim who were trained by Pastor Brown and how God has used those two men and continues to use them in remarkable ways. But more than that, he trained many other pastors, multiple lay leaders, and entrusted ministry to multiple missionary interns who are serving Christ around the globe today. 
I also think on the other end of the spectrum, think with me about a little boy who grew up here and started going to Awana and memorized verses and then got involved in the junior high ministry and the high school ministry and then he sensed God calling him into ministry so he went to Moody Bible Institute, got his undergrad degree and his master's degree. After he graduated, God opened up an opportunity for him to serve at Peoria Christian School and to serve part-time as a pastor in Kiwani. That young man's name is Justin Rumley. The church that he has been part-time at just took a vote and unanimously called Justin as a full-time pastor, and he's being installed today. Let's just give God glory for that. Friends, so see that word picture and see that you and I have been entrusted with the gospel and it's our job to pass it on by leaving a legacy of faithfulness. Now, here's a very vivid metaphor, a focused soldier. Join me in verses 3 and 4 and note how we're introduced again to the theme of suffering Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That phrase, share in suffering, is a command. It means to suffer together. (laughs) The theme of suffering actually permeates this short book of 2 Timothy. It's found at least once in every chapter. Uh, Look at verse 1, verse Chapter 1, verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel. Here in chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering. Chapter 3, verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right at the end of the book, some of the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure Suffering, Brothers and sisters, we've said this before. In fact, I just said it two weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Jesus did not propagate the prosperity gospel. He preached the persecution gospel. Oh, let me draw us to John 15, 20. Words of Jesus, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. One of the things that the Lord has impressed upon me these last couple years is one of my roles here. I stumble through most of what I'm called to do But here's one role I'm taking very seriously is to help prepare all of us to suffer well. To prepare us for persecution because persecution is coming. I think about that a lot. And here's why my observation that For some of us, me included, at times when suffering comes, I'm like, God, what's the deal? And some of us get really angry at God. And we shut down or we we don't know how to endure hardship. and, and, And so when we don't know how to endure it, then we end up not accomplishing much for Christ. And some of us will spend the rest of our lives complaining or capitulating or caving. Friends, we must persevere when hard times come. 
One way that helps me think about the importance of persevering is a podcast that I listen to on a regular basis put out by the Voice of the Martyrs. It's VOM Radio, and it's just a half-hour podcast weekly of what our persecuted brothers and sisters are going through around the world. I'm thinking, man, I'm not going through that right now. I'm going through some stuff, but it's not that. Help me to be like them when hard times come here. Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Friends, we are called to stand with our suffering servants. By the way, Voice of the Martyrs is one of our Go Team partners. When you give your offering either online or uh, through a check, part of what you give supports the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs. In the Second World War, I'm told that people often quoted a catchphrase, and they would say this phrase in order to remind them to sacrifice. Here's the phrase, don't you know there's a war on? Listen, if you've been saved, you are a soldier, and you're at war. And you may think, I I don't feel like I'm at war. Well, listen, you are at war right now in at least three realms. You're at war with your flesh. Those desires that creep up, those unholy thoughts, that desire to gossip and backbite and slaughter others with your tongue, that's your flesh. And friends, we're called to do war against our flesh. And you're like, I don't have any trouble with my flesh. Well, that's trouble right there because it means you've probably given in to those impulses and desires. There's a second realm in which we're at war, and that's the realm of the world around us. And man, there's a lot of evidence for that, isn't there? Just look at your feed or the newspaper or headlines. There's a lot that the world is attacking us for. But there's a third realm. The Bible says we're at war with the devil himself. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion and he's prowling around. He's seeking someone to what? Devour. That's war image. So friends, we don't have the option of saying, oh, I just kind of, I'm going to push the easy button in the Christian life. Uh, That's not there. That's not available. We're at war. Now, in order to help me understand and help us understand what it was like in Paul's world when he was writing using this metaphor of a soldier, I found a resource called Manners and Customs of the Bible that describes what it was like as a Roman soldier. Every soldier was compelled to endure hardship. The weapons were heavy, and in addition to them, the ordinary foot soldier was compelled to carry a saw, a basket, a pickaxe, an axe, a thong of leather, and a hook, together with three days of rations. The Roman soldier was expected to keep one thing in his sights, and only one, the service of his commander. He was not allowed to marry, nor could he engage in agriculture, trade, or manufacturing. He was a soldier and could not anything else I think of Joshua 514 when we see the pre-incarnate Christ appearing and it says about him the commander of the army of the Lord friends as soldiers our number one aim is to please our commander Jesus Christ 
We've been enlisted by the Almighty, and so we must make sure we do not become entangled with anything that knocks us off mission. Hebrews 12.1, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. So if you go back to 1 Timothy 1.18, wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Unfortunately, too many today have either gone AWOL or have become entangled in things that are tripping them up. Now, I've never served in the military, but I asked a few vets to describe what it's like to be a soldier, and I wrote these down. Maintain a single-minded focus. Practice rigorous daily discipline. Expect opposition from the enemy. Exhibit unquestioning obedience and loyalty to the commanding officer. Work as a team with fellow soldiers. Be willing to restrict your freedoms. And these next four are from Matt Bowman. Be constantly vigilant. Train every day so tasks become second nature and automatic. Know your enemy, but also know your allies. You will fail some tests, learn what you did wrong, and move on. Our son-in-law, Jamie, served as a Marine for four years. I asked Jamie for his insight. I'm only going to mention one. He sent a lot of really helpful things. Number one, I'm a Marine 24-7. It was not a day job. Our whole lives are dedicated to the mission. It affected our civilian attire so we would represent our country well. It affected our time off so that we would be ready if we were called to action whenever and wherever. There was no part of our lives that were out of bounds from the call of our mission. Speaking of being ready, I am so impressed with Sheila Kershak, aren't you? In our children's ministry and all that God is using her to accomplish along with Liesl Parks and Becca Rollins and the whole team of servants that are downstairs right now serving and equipping our children. So this summer in just a short period of time, beginning July 20th, that's like a week from this week, uh, we're going to have Vacation Bible School Super Summer Slam. And I want to point out something underneath the Keepers of the Kingdom. This is all focused on the armor of God. Check this, standing strong in today's battle for truth. Man, our kids need to stand strong. There's still opportunities to serve and make sure you're inviting your friends, your family members, and your neighbors. Last year, two of our neighbors came. We've invited four this year. We hope they all come. Number four, a fit athlete. He switches metaphors here, and now he puts the image of an Olympic athlete, like somebody who runs in the Greek games. We read, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The word for athlete means to strive together. To crown, to be crowned means they're given this evergreen wreath that was only given to the winner, but only if he kept the rules of the contest. Now, Paul often drew spiritual truth from sports. I think of wrestling, Ephesians 6.12, track, boxing, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, to go back in Paul's time, in order for an athlete to compete in the games, he must first be a true-born Greek, and number two, swear that he had trained diligently for 10 months. 
Now, I thought of some other ways that sports can teach us spiritual lessons. Those of you who are into sports, uh, you'll think of some others, and I hope you do. It gets us thinking about this word picture. Here's what I wrote down. Follow the coach. Be disciplined. Training and conditioning are required. Practice self-denial. Be willing to work hard. Have a strategy to win and know the rules and follow them. You know, if you think about it, every sport has its own rules and regulations. Last night, Jeff and Jennifer Tremblay sitting out here, we know them back from our central Illinois days, invited us to an arena football game last night. We watched the Steam Wheelers. It was actually hard for me because the Steam Wheelers are from the Quad Cities. You know who they were playing? Green Bay. Guess who I rooted for? The steam wheelers, first time in my life I cheered against Green Bay. Anyway, we're sitting watching this game. I don't know if you've ever been. First time there, I had no clue what was happening. The field is only 50 yards long. The goalposts are like this close together. They're pounding on each other. I didn't understand how the clock worked. I didn't understand the rules. But the other people understood the rules. Every sport has some rules. Ask the four NFL players who gambled, who bet on games that they played in last year. All four of them have been suspended. Or ask Sunbury Teferi, who was mere seconds away from defending her Peachtree Road Race title in Georgia. She took a wrong turn at the end of the race, knocking her out of first place, costing her thousands in prize money. Now, as you may know, the John Deere Classic is taking place right now. I don't know much about golf. I did attend last year, and I had a great time. I went with my son-in-law, Brad, and I kept asking him questions, and he was explaining the rules, and I don't know that I understood it even as he was explaining the rules. This last week, I asked him a question again, and Brad sent me an example of a rule. It's called the clubhouse rule. If a shot ends up in the clubhouse, and the clubhouse is not out of bounds, you can open a door or window and play the next shot without penalty. Did you know that? Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) He also sent me a news story, this true story. A guy from Illinois, a really good golfer, was playing to qualify for the U.S. Open, and his score qualified him. After he was done, he was talking to his fellow golfers about the course that day. And as they were describing the course and one of the rules, this guy who just qualified for the U.S. Open realized he broke a rule. He turned himself in and was disqualified. Rick Waddell, uh, who volunteered at the tournament this week, told me that the rule book for this year is 244 pages long. Team Edgewood, God is calling us to play by his rules. We cannot make it up as we go. We can't say, well, I don't like that rule. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. We can't go with what we think or with what we feel or think that somehow we know better than God does. I cringe when I hear Christians say something like this. So this is like an amalgamation of things I've heard over the past 30 years. It goes something like this. Yeah, I know what I'm doing is a sin. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be sleeping with my girlfriend. 
I know that. I know it's wrong. But God understands my situation. I know he just wants me to be happy. I'm like, what? No, God wants us to be holy, to do things his way, the way that he has determined. Friends, before passing on, pass it on by leaving a legacy of faithfulness. So Paul's creating all these word pictures in Timothy's mind and in our minds as well. Now he goes to the image of a fruitful farmer. Uh, Join me in verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. (laughs) The word hardworking means to toil to the point of exhaustion, to give great effort. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I spent summers on a farm. My uncle owned a farm. Here are some things I remembered. First of all, a farmer has to work. Secondly, the work is hard and it's dirty and it's never-ending. There's always something to fix. The tasks are often mundane and monotonous. Weeds and pests are a constant threat. Patience must be practiced. The weather is unpredictable. And farmers hope not in the present, but in a future harvest. Paul wants us to know that while salvation is free, there's a cost to discipleship. It's not meant to be easy. I heard about a church that wanted to reach people living in a post-Christian context, and so they're wrestling with their mission. They were praying, they were thinking, and they were jotting down ideas. And these three phrases appeared on the whiteboard at the end of their discussion. Number one, really hard work for a really long time in a really hard place. We know Paul did not hesitate to call out those who flamed out in their faith, but you know Paul also celebrated those who stepped up and stood out. Listen to what he said about two women. These are found in Romans 16. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. And then he says, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Now let's go to the final metaphor, that of a fervent student. After Paul paints all these pictures, he wants to make sure Timothy slows down, spends some time thinking about them. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That word think over is a command. It means to consider carefully, to meditate, to chew on this, to let this sink in. The word understanding means to reason it all out. How does this all come together? How does it run together? The idea is to slow down and study. And so we can watch God bring it all together. Paul said something similar in 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Philippians 4.8, think about these things. Psalm 64.9, ponder what he has done. Psalm 119, I will meditate on all your wondrous works. Now, unfortunately, many of us don't spend much time mulling things over. We're not really meditating because we're inundated with media and messaging all the time. A couple months ago, I met a pastor in the community. His name is Bob Allen. Bob has just moved to Missouri, and he recently wrote an article that really shook me up. It's called, Pay Careful Attention to Your Attention. And I thought I'd share my pain with you 
as I read just part of it. You might want to just take note as I read this, you may think, I want to get a hold of that article. You can find it on Sermon Extras on our app or website. This is what Bob writes. I'm just reading part of it. A captivating torrent inundates the senses of the teens and preteens I work with every morning. Their gaze fixates on the screen in their hands. The scene flashes, and the next clip seizes their focus, demanding their attention for a few more seconds as a stream of fights and dances and jokes and pranks and rants and filtered faces kindles something in them. Watching them, it is the disinterest of their posture toward the material they consume which strikes me. The body language of these developing young men and women presents a marked contrast to their rapt attention. These minds hold no quarter for anything but their own amusement, only this isn't amusement. It's anesthetic. Bored. They are bored. And in their boredom, they barely blink their way into a glassy-eyed, joyless trance of watch, swipe, watch, swipe, watch, swipe, rather than engage in relationship or conversation or play or work or community or anything really. They endlessly scroll through an endlessly repetitive series of endlessly desperate posts made by endless individuals seeking to fill the endlessly deep hole at the center of every soul. It is frightening. He continues, I want this to be a generational problem. I want to blame parents for giving their wards access to smartphones. I would love to slap the technology right out of the hands of these impressionable minds. But who am I to do so? Because I am the same person. I impulsively snatch up my phone every time it buzzes, dings, chirps, lights up, and otherwise makes itself noticeable. But the issue lies not in smartphones, apps, or social media, but also in the uncountable phenomena flitting through our day-to-day lives, vying for our attention. Here's how he ends. I fear we immerse ourselves in these diversions, pastimes, and avocations haphazardly, paying little heed to what they cost us, how much they ask and take of us. We end up inadvertently ensnared by our own interests, which have the potential to delight and distract us from the one for whom our hearts were designed to worship. Mm. How are you doing at meditating on those things that really matter? Do you take time to embrace that which is eternal Are you immersing yourself in God's inspired word? Do you think about theology and how everything works together? About a week ago, our mainspring young adult ministry, most of them seated over there on my left to your right, uh, spent time taking the State of Theology survey. This is the survey that was done nationwide by Ligonier and Lifeway, and our young adult ministry took it. We're going to take it as an entire church in just a couple weeks. The results of that survey were stunning. They aced the test with flying colors. Their understanding and embrace of biblical theology along with their Christian worldview is a testament to how God is using Pastor Kyle, Pastor Chris, AJ, along with all the servant leaders in our student ministry and mainspring. And it is so humbling and encouraging to see you guys getting your doctrine 
and your duty right. Listen, they understand the message of the Bible and they live on mission and they take the gospel to their neighbors and the nations. And we get to hear from one of these young adults in just a few minutes. Now, I'm not sure I should have told you I was Rudy the root beer bear, but I'm certain of this. You and I must go back to the root of who we are so we can pass along what we've been given. In part, this is who we are. If you have been born again, you are a fearless child, a faithful steward, a focused soldier, a fit athlete, a fruitful farmer, and a fervent student. This week, I was out in the community, and I saw a guy wearing a hat, and he had a very bold message on his hat. I took that as an invitation to initiate a conversation. I told him that I liked what his hat said, and I asked him what it meant. He looked at me like a deer in headlights. It's just like he had no idea what I was talking about. Well, I'm actually used to that. So anyway, I smiled, I pointed to his hat, and I read the message on his hat out loud for him to hear. Here's the message on his hat, quote, I'm a Jesus people person. He shrugged his shoulders, took off his cap, looked at the words, and he simply said, oh, I just picked this hat up in some store in Leclerc. <laughs> well, now I'm realizing, all right, he's not a Jesus follower. And so this is a gospel opportunity. I identified myself as a Christ follower. I asked if he was interested in following Christ. He put the brakes on the conversation. He made it clear he was done talking. I thought about accusing him of false advertising. <laughs> But I thought better of it. And since I didn't have an anchor for the soul to throw at him, I mumbled something about the importance of being a Jesus people person, and I excused myself. He didn't want to talk anymore. So we think, what's going on with this guy? Well, this guy had obviously not thought deeply about what he believed. Then it hit me. What about me? What about you? Have you thought differently? Have you thought deeply about what you believe? Is what you're advertising to others really true? Do you embrace being a Christ follower? Or do you just shrug your shoulders and go, I, I don't really know who I am or what I believe? Well, let's spend just a few minutes pondering these phrases. We don't do silence well in our lives. So just look at these and ask yourself, this is part of my identity. How, how am I doing? And what would God want me to do as my next step?